all got that voice in our head that tells us we can't do stuff. But some people are just better at not listening to it. And by sitting down with those people, asking them questions, and then you know, recording it and blasting it out on the internet, perhaps, maybe, I can help other people like me get out of our own way. Hey guys, welcome back to Closure Optional. My guest this week is Abraham Garfield. He is a sports psychologist and he runs a company called Summit Performance Psychology. And they give you uh, sort of well-being, performance, and leadership services through the field of psychology. He works with the AFL Players Association, um, Swimming Australia, Queensland Association of Sports, and Squash Australia, which um, I thought was kind of cute. These are major big associations that all of our elite athletes kind of perform in, and Squash Australia <laughs> is one of them. It's cute. Uh, squash is a hard sport, but it just is such a cute name that it's hard to take it seriously. Um, in his personal life, Abra is also a world-class ultimate Frisbee player, I think last year, and he sent me a couple photos of him at the World Championships for Ultimate Frisbee, which is awesome. So he definitely, from an internal perspective, knows how to get to your absolute optimum potential. And he raps, uh, like as a part of his alter ego. <laughs> He'll treat your sports psychology issues in the daytime and then goes and raps on stage at night. I was about to say rap artist, but I don't know if that, I don't, it's so not cool. I don't know if, I guess you say hip hop artist or MC or something, but anyways, he's a rapper. Um, and that's pretty cool. Um, the one other thing that he does that is very close to my heart because uh, I'm an athlete who constantly injures myself, uh, he runs a program called the Ac Athlete Recovery Academy. And this is injury recovery services. So in conjunction with your physiological repair and rehab uh, to deal with the actual physical injury that you've got, he runs a program to help people psychologically improve and repair from a uh, traumatic sports injury or injury in general, which I think is in, uh, fucking so necessary and so important that we probably, I don't, I think we kind of tend to overlook this a little bit. I know I do because I, I mean, I didn't even go to see a physiotherapist for any of my injuries until I needed to be at my peak constantly because I needed to be ready for another fight. And I was walking around with dislocated ribs or, um, I've hyperextended my elbow. I've obviously just my shin fell off recently. And to what I used to do was just kind of like grin and bear it, get through it and just do stuff that didn't hurt it until it was finally kind of better. And now uh, I've been working with the Burley Physio, um, Burley Heads Physiotherapy Center. They're the ones that um, they sponsor this podcast and they've sponsored my fight career so far. And they are just the most fucking amazing people and have just... I, I just introduced me to a world of like, oh, you don't have to suffer through this shit. You can actually help yourself. Just go see a physio. They'll tell you what you can and can't do, and they'll teach you how to repair your own body. It's an amazing thing. And so what Abra does is he'll take you um, through that. He, he works with a physiotherapy and a physiotherapy center himself. So as a part of a holistic treatment plan for anybody, um, they can go and see him and start clearing out any of that 
traumatic bullshit inside their head that will stop them from getting back to their peak performance. Because you may have healed the injury completely, but you're still not operating. You're still shying away from that front leg kick or whatever it is because you're worried that your shin might fall off in the back of your head. Um, and I don't think that's the trouble for me. You know, a lot, uh, the, one of the main reasons why I'm still kind of taking a break from actively fighting at the moment is that I wear this shit so heavily inside my head. I work it up in my head the whole six-week fight camp out. As soon as I get matched for a fight, that's all I'm thinking out in the, about in the back of my head. It's just running like this program behind my head. I'll be sitting at the traffic lights twitching because I'm thinking about punching someone in the face. And it's not because I am like have this violent, aggressive desire to hit somebody. It's that I'm just shit scared of the task ahead of me. And I'm constantly trying to be prepared as much as possible for the task. So every waking second I've got, I try and you know get my body ready in fight or flight mode. And um, which is insane because my body, my brain can't tell the difference between when I'm doing something in my head or when I'm doing it in real life. So by the time I actually have a fight six weeks later, I've had that fight thousands of times inside my head. And it, I, I guess it works. I mean, it helps because I, I've done pretty well so far, but it's exhausting. And it, my, I just going through these cycles of the build up to that moment, this intense, insane climax moment, not the normal nice kind of climax, but the fucking intense out of body experience of being in the ring and being on total autopilot. I'm not even actually afraid of the ring itself. I'm, it's the moments leading up to stepping over those ropes that just every time I think about it gives me chills. I don't know. I don't handle it very well. Then as soon as the fight's over, there's a big sense of relief. But then I, I get, and the more fighters I talk to, the more I notice that they seem to get the same thing because your body gets completely filled with adrenaline and dopamine and flooded with all these cortisol, these insane stress hormones. After it's over, you feel like you've just been out fucking drinking vodka Red Bulls for three days in a row, popping pills or possibly shoving them inside your asshole. Not that I've ever, well, I have done it once. So, like, that feeling of being out on a fucking bender in surface paradise for three days, that's what the fight is like to me. So then for at least four days or a week afterward, I just feel like shit. And then I start eating shit food because I'm finally allowed to, and the whole cycle just repeats itself. And then I blow up. I end up getting gaining 10 kilos a month after the fight, and then I've got to try and pull it all back down and try and get back to weight and the whole cycle repeats itself. So anyways, in a long-winded, ridiculous roundabout way, I guess what I'm saying is that if you are looking to have a fight or have had a fight or if you've got some big daunting task up ahead of you, be aware of how much mental stress you're putting on yourself to accomplish this thing and ask yourself if it's helping. Most of the time it's not helping. Most of the time you need practiced visualization time where you can lay there consciously visualizing the outcome of the fight or um, you know, visualize going through the one round. But then when it's time to stop, let it stop. Let it be done. So you don't constantly wear this shit on your head. Um, and if you need some help with this stuff, if you feel like you're out of your mind and you really love the sport but you don't know how to really manage this shit, then seek out. Go see Abraham. Go see somebody who's a qualified sports psychologist that can really help you hone your skills to clear your head out so that you can be the very best version of you possible. Anyways, that's a huge, long-winded introduction for something I didn't really mean to say. Um, but this is a great 
really great conversation. And um, so I hope you get something out of it. I hope you enjoy it. And I will be back again next week with a very wonderfully exciting guest. So have a great week. We'll talk to you again soon. Welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here, man, because I um, talk a lot about psychology in here, and I have zero, absolutely zero expertise in the field. So it's nice to have an expert in the room. Well, hopefully, um, yeah, we can talk a little bit about human psychology and performance and see where it goes. Good. So what is it that you do? You're a sports psychologist. Um, yeah, sport and exercise psychology. So I work in private practice um, and I work with teams and individuals helping to um, promote and enhance well-being as well as um, performance outcomes. And we do that working on uh, goal setting and personal development, um, improving training environments, as well as teaching mental skills and focus planning for competition environments to manage stress and hopefully get into the zone when it matters. Yeah, fuck. And in the zone, what do you mean by that? Um, to be able to be at that peak state where you're, um, I guess, feeling the flow or where time slows down and you're incredibly focused on what you're doing and yeah. where humans can kind of, uh, I don't know, you know, reach their peak, I guess. It is. It feels like, I, I understand what you mean. We've talked about this a little bit before, like when I um, met you last week, that feeling of like, exactly, as time slows down, it's almost like the absence of me. I feel a sensation that I'm not consciously present mm. necessarily. It's almost like I've completely immer immersed myself in this action, and mm. I'm not even almost in control of it. It's almost like I'm on autopilot for a second. And the, as soon as I draw attention to it, it disappears. Like, mm. or if I, it, and it's the same way I've, I've felt it like playing music. If I get into a harmony with somebody else or like get into a rhythm of it, as soon as you call attention to it, one of you is going to fuck it up. But yeah. you have this like blissful moment where everything seems to line up. I think uh, I can I can definitely relate to that 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 feeling of kind of the dropping of the ego and the script and all that verbal thought and just being totally immersed in percep perception and action and that kind of uh, slowing down of time and uh, it almost feels like everything's easy and all your choices come to you and there's a real pleasurable state. I think yeah, that man. that's what humans are really looking for in life. We kind of compartmentalize it in sport and call it the flow or getting into the zone, but I think it's really what uh, this whole journey's about is looking for those peak conscious states where we're able to operate just a little bit better than, than the norm. And, um, yeah, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of what I do is helping people to maximize the likelihood and probability they'll achieve that state when they want to. We yeah. can't guarantee it, <laughs> but a lot of people feel that that's just like the weather, it comes and goes and Hey, if I had a good day, that was just lucky. And, yeah, um, yes, I, totally. that's not the, you know, not the case There's a whole science of, optimizing your consciousness and learning mental skills and routines and rituals to do before your performance so that you can increase the, you know, play the numbers game, increase the likelihood you'll be in that place. And, wow. and it's the same for training. I think if you're able to prime the right kind of conscious state at training, your learning outcomes and your personal development and reaching your goals is also enhanced because we really do need to be focused and present to learn as well as perform under pressure. Yeah. So there, so there is a sensation definitely that you're, um, like you feel like you're out of your own way and you're, you're doing this thing on autopilot, right? So it, from mm. my own personal experience, when I'm in that state, I feel like I'm perfect. But mm. is there tangible evidence that when a person is in that state, they are performing better? 
That's a good question. I mean, looking at, um, you know, research and evidence into almost retrospectively, I guess, having to check if people had a subjective report that they were in the zone and then looking at their performance compared to when they're they're reporting that they're not. We don't necessarily have um, a connection between the ECG technology and the fMRI technology just yet to be able to map exactly what the zone is. It's still one of those mystical spaces where there's (laughs) ideas, but brain activity alone at the level of brain scans and brain monitoring technology, it would be really hard to do that live, and it would depend a lot on subjective reports afterwards. So I don't know if we're there yet to really nail it down with perfect signs. Um, And to be honest, I think it's a great question, and I'll have to look that up because... Uh, I think as sports psychologists, in in a lot of ways, we um, take it for granted that that's just the case. That when we're in the zone, we do perform better. Yeah. Because um, I don't know of any of any specific research on that. Looking at the flow state, huh. um, there's plenty of stuff on when you're feeling confident, when you're feeling focused, when you have a positive mood, when you're feeling motivated, and 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 looking at the the relationship between performance and showing that those things are correlated with performance in some way, but. Oh, really? Uh, I'm not aware of flow research around performance just off the top of my head. Huh. I will look it up. Yeah, because I just, you know, because you're right. Like, it feels 100% like, oh, I'm doing better. Like, I, I, I can't fuck this up. Yeah. And I have, like, like what we were talking about the other day, that when, if I was at the top of a jump line uh, skiing, ready to go and hit this big jump, mm. if I didn't wait to get into that kind of calm mental state and I just went, I was gonna feel sloppy or weird or usually crash yeah but I never crashed when I was in that flow state when I was in that flow state I would just get in there and everything just went automatically it right. was so soft so smooth and then I just landed and we used to call it like greasing a rail mm. um and uh, it sounds gross it sounds it's like something filthy you do in a self-pleasure circle <laughs> it's not the case <laughs> um <laughs> it's uh it it just feels like buttery. Like yeah. it feels so smooth that you are almost like locked onto this thing that you couldn't possibly fall off in yeah. either direction. Um, well, that's really interesting. So what kind of, um, what kind of prerequisites are necessary to get somebody into that kind of state? Um, great question. Uh, I think that, you know, you almost want to imagine a bit of a pyramid, like the, uh, like the, 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 the dietary, the food pyramid here where, at the very top, at the very peak, is that conscious state. But what are the building blocks or foundation that we have to put in place to, you know, uh, like I said, enhance that numbers game? And it's not just a quick mental trick or a ritual before you, you know, um, uh, go down and hit the rail. Yeah. I think it's a culmination of a lot of things. And humans love to simplify things and look at cause and effect and go, hey, I... You know, I know why I performed well today. It's because I was in the right mental state before I dropped in. When actually, there's a lot of factors that yeah. you know uh, that I guess um, cooperate in 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 you achieving that state when you do. And it, I think it it starts with a strong well-being foundation. I think people need to make sure that you know, in in some ways, their their self-love and their self-esteem and their uh, natural developmental needs and human needs are being met outside of their performance world to make sure those batteries are full, in a sense. Yeah, okay. um, and, you know, when you're looking at making sure someone's in the zone, we need to make sure that things like sleep and, you know, their nutrition and their recovery and their social life and their occupational life and their stress management um, are at least, you know, a focus of our work. So there's a lot yeah. of um, 
helping people look at their lifestyles and their well-being and helping educate them about how that is connected to the psychology of performance on game day or at training. Because yeah. if your batteries are empty, you can't bring that energy, that psychological energy you need to be able to train hard, which mm. means you're not going to get better as quickly as you want. Yeah. But also to manage the pressure and the stress of a competition environment, we need to have those batteries fill. Like our resilience isn't something that's just part of our character. It's dependent on how well our mental stores and stocks are filled and ready for that environment to cope with it. So we look at... F um, we, we look at athletes' well-being, and then from there we move into their training environment um, and make sure that we're enhancing their training environment by looking at where we can simulate pressure and trial by fire, what we call the performance mind. And so breaking up the idea of a training mind, which is for acquiring skills and learning skills and refining skills, which is very self-focused, self-conscious. Mm -hmm. You know, the emergence of the ego, that whole self-reflective thing you said that gets in the way of being in the zone, yeah. in a lot of ways that's required for learning and self-reflection and, mm. you know, capturing skills and refining them. But we also need to trial those skills by fire under pressure. So I work with athletes to simulate, simulate the uh, adversity or the stress that they'll be under in competition environments in their training world so that they can inoculate. It's like stress inoculation. Yeah, same things yeah, in yeah. S like same things the military would do with their, you know, SES um, troopers, stress inoculate so that they're ready for a war zone. Um, or wow. that we do with real inoculations, a small dose of pressure uh, or a small dose of a disease will help your body become immune to a larger dose. So we wow. do that with pressure. And I think that's really important when we're talking about your question around how we uh, enhance people's chances of being in the zone or feeling the flow state is um, is is putting them into that pressure cooker <laughs> enough that they um, that they get used to it and that they desensitize to it a little bit uh, because if that pressure environment is really stressful for them or is perceived as a threat, again we get the emergence of that ego and all that self doubt and all those distractions that pull people out of the zone. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, when you're talking about snowboarding and needing to have that mental calm, I mean, we were talking about is there any evidence that flow is equivalent to performance outcomes. Um, one way of looking at that is people choke under pressure because of self-focused or self-awareness, uh, self self-focused attention. You know, when something's really important to you, like, um, you know, being able to do a backflip off of a big jump on skis, um, the more you focus on how to do it and try to control it with your consciousness, the more likely you are to choke under pressure. Yeah. And we have to be really task-focused and really immersed in our sensory experience to avoid that self-focus. So, so putting the energy into your physical body, the physical movements mm. that are required to get that job done rather than thinking that you can do it. Yeah, we, we almost yeah, want to well, trust the motor cortex of the brain that it knows how to do that backflip if we've done enough training. And in yeah. those important moments, really put the blindfold on in a weird way and not try and introspectively control the skill execution. As soon as we go, this is important, so I'll take back conscious control because it's really important I nail it. There's yeah. this ironic effect of choking under pressure through self-focused attention. So it breaks up all of our automaticity and our natural skill execution that our motor cortex is used to doing and sends inhibitory signals because you have two parts of the brain sending signals to your body so your muscles get confused and it breaks up that... Um, uh, that chunk, chunking or that learning process of compiling motor biomechanics together to be able to execute something like a backflip, which is a complex motor skill. We yeah. end up, ironically, fucking it up when we try and invest too much consciously. So, you know, <laughs> by clearing your mind and getting in that zone, in a weird way, what we could say is we're getting rid of that self-focus, yeah. which you mentioned before, 
always gets in the way of flow. As soon as we become self-focused, we drop out of that peak performance state. Yeah. Well, and that makes perfect sense that there's a pyramid level to this. I mean, obviously, uh, even if we just eliminate, so you've got your lifestyle factors first and then you've Mm. got your training factors. But if, if I didn't have the 300 hours of specific focused energy to learn how to do that backflip, I couldn't eliminate my mind when it came to the pressure situation because right. that my my body wouldn't know what to do. And do you know what's interesting about that? I never had a coach when I was skiing. I had a natural skill because I'd learned to ski when I was two years old. Right. It's like I learned about Mountain the same baby. time. Yeah. <laughs> so I grew up like it was out my front door. Yeah. And so since I never I I I know how to ski the way I know how to walk. It just happens automatically. Mm. I've never even considered how you do this thing. It just happens to right. me because uh, I've always just done it. So when I started hitting jumps, it was like I'd never even had to think about what I was supposed to do with my body. I just knew that once I went off of that jump, something needed to happen. I had mm. a vision in my head of what was supposed to happen, and I just try stuff. So I was just I would go. I had the skill to go off a jump and land because mm. I knew how to ski. <laughs> but that right. was all. That was all I knew. <laughs> Everything else is I was just like, eh, fuck it, I'll give it a go. Yeah. And so I just jump off of the thing and like try to turn my head around in the air and I hope I landed on my feet. And most of the time I definitely didn't. And it was so dangerous. <clears throat> but I didn't have a coach, you know, like this this thing right. is so lacking. Sports psychology is something that is so lacking. I think in, in a lot of those arenas because it costs a lot of money and it and right. it costs a lot of I, I guess it, it means like I need to be a person that thinks I have enough talent or skill or energy or wherewithal to try to be the best. Right. Then once I'm the best, then I'll get a sports psychologist that's right. going to help me be better. Right. But once I'm stuck in my ways and it's too late <laughs> and it's just a glorified, uh, you know, mental catch on the side. Whereas I guess that, yeah, it's, it's like a it, bit of a bummer that we, it, that this, this stuff is less accessible, mm. you know, it's difficult to be. And I, I think that way, I think about that way about psychology in general across mm. the board. Like that we, it's insane to me that we spend this much time and energy uh, teaching someone how to memorize facts about our history, which is mm. important. I do think history is very, very important. But memorizing facts to pass a test at school does nothing for how I'm going to face challenges in my life and how I'm going to work past them. Right. I, I'm not learning how to deal with my own psyche. I think we, we've we become so far disassociated. Like when I say, you know, when you walked in and you, as soon as we started talking, you said, you know, getting into the flow state, I'd say that probably maybe 70% of the people that hear those words don't know what you mean or or have felt something like it, but they didn't know that there's a word for it or they don't even know really what that feels like. I don't know. It's just on that day mm. because we're so disassociated from our own minds. Mm. I think in our bodies too, you know, that we've like lost touch with, I guess, the superficial nature of like the digital world and, you know, just our materialism. Uh, You know, you see this reemergence, I guess, starting, I guess, in the 1970s or 80s with the trendy Buddhism stuff in the West and bringing back meditation and yoga and introspective stuff. It's almost filling a need that I think our Western culture, like you say, we're disconnected from mind. Mm. We're addicted to our mental script or, you know, the idea of who we are, our ego, rather than that as a space. Um, and I think that, you know, that could be, uh, a big problem for younger and younger generations who are, um, I guess just reinforced to connect with, you know, an alternate reality really, which is the digital world. Um, as, and you know, the, the normal world becomes a secondary, a secondary place, I guess. Uh, And that, that is a bit scary when I go into schools and work with kids and talk about, 
uh, well-being and stress and how their brains are designed and a bit of evolution and human design and helping them understand why they suffer, you know, through anger and mm. fear and sadness. A lot of, a lot of the time, that, like you say, this stuff is just not part of curriculum. You know, mm. there's no well-being and psychology of who you are and what you're going to experience as you develop as a person. And I think, you know, uh, we're teaching kids how to bake uh, cakes in home economics class still. And we're teaching kids how to sew jeans. And, you know, there's this <laughs> industrialization of schools where we're creating great little worker bees. Yeah. Um, and I find there's a gap where um, meeting the needs of kids' development and their um, emotional and, and social needs, especially right now in the world today, mm-hmm. there's a huge, uh, a huge mountain to climb for kids as far as understanding their worlds and understanding themselves and accessing yeah. healing and developing in healthy ways. And, you know, so it's time for curriculum, I think, to catch up. Yeah, I think you're fuck. right. And, and I th- I'd say, I mean, would you say that possibly the higher incidences of uh, ADHD or autism or like Mm. people really struggling in this structured way of school is possibly that the younger generation already knows that this needs to change because they're coming through this like you know like that we evolve Mm. we know that we've evolved and so we're watching this as the parents of this younger generation we're seeing this change coming and it's pretty natural that those kids are coming out more prepared for this newer form of whatever the fuck it is like they're gonna they as you said the other day they have another ego they have to deal with now we have the original ego that is the self and then they Mm. have the online virtual version of themselves Mm. like that's a crazy thing to deal with that we we just take it for granted that i'm a body with a mind Mm. and there's an ego that uh runs the kind of version of myself but what you had said to me the other day i mean you put it so well it's incredible that like yeah they're gonna take it for granted that they also have a third version of themselves, which is the online self, this virtual self that exists. It's going to exist, and, and they're not going to know a day without it. That's right. I mean, I guess a lot of parents these days take that first photo and stick it on Instagram or Facebook when their child's born, and <clears throat> I'm not challenging parents and their decisions to take photos and record the journey, but uh, there's a, an immediate emergence of a digital self there, and I think that's something we need to understand and we need to you know, look at how we understand our, like you say, our egos or the conceptual self. I don't mean ego like you got a big head. I more mean the, the idea of who we are. And the idea yeah. of who we are is a powerful thing. You know, our self-beliefs and our idea of our future self. And, um, and I guess, yeah, the story I was telling you before, I think we was in the context of how we manage stress and keep our batteries full and the different things that trigger stress and how Stress is a, um, you know, part of the fight or flight system or the threat system or the alarm system in the body. We all have a security system. The problem is it's like old hardware. It's really ancient. And it's built for the thousands of years where we had serious security and survival issues that took up most of our day. (laughs) And so our our world and our priorities and our reinforcement schedule was very different than it is in our modern world today with all of our security and survival needs. Well, sorry, a large amount of our security and survival needs met at least us blessed whiteies in this beautiful western world with our all of our you know blessings and luck and, and yeah you know all of that stuff we have i guess for other people around the world we have less the luxury security. to be anxious exactly <laughs> we have the luxury and i think what i was coining it before was like a false alarm where our our ancient security systems like old hardware like old hardware for computers you you have to get rid of it and put new hardware and you can't update old hardware mm. and our and our, our our cortical areas or our 
our neofrontal cortex is kind of like software. It can be updated as modernity happens, and we've got this new modern brain that's been updating constantly, but the core of our brain or our limbic system, which is very primal and controls our emotional responses and our security threat issues, is old hardware, and they've, you know, they've just moved, they've grown apart. They don't communicate well anymore. And, and you know, the, this new mind or this new brain is like focused on who we can be, self-actualization, you know, the future self. Now that my survival and security needs are met, let's look at, you know, what else humans are capable of as far as reaching our potential and there lies the emergence of the ego or the second self, you know. Yeah. Our, our security system and our brain was just designed to protect our bodies, it's only good at making us angry or scared so we can freak out, mobilize energy quick so we can climb trees, run away, or fight and kick some ass. Is that the primate brain or something? You well, know, yeah. like they talk about like you have a reptile brain. Well, look, I, I know that those analogies, I don't know if I'll, if I'll nail it because we don't use those analogies as much in psychology, but it is not necessarily a reptilian brain because that's probably what, you know, like controls your heart and lungs and basic functions so of your body. Okay. But it is, it is a primate. Yeah, it is, I guess, maybe a primate brain. We, we are primates, though, so our whole brain is primate. I'm not, I mean, the best way of thinking about it is you've got an old security system. <laughs> it's old, it's old hardware. And, yeah, it, yeah. and it doesn't know the difference between, unfortunately, your body and your ego. So we have a lot of uh, what we can just think of as false alarms or stress responses in our lives where this ancient hardware is kicked off with a security response, which is fight or flight, get out of trouble, kick some ass, when our bodies are actually safe. Our bodies aren't under threat. It's the idea of who we are that's under threat. Someone makes fun of us or we might lose a fight or we might crash and be judged. And it's about losing social status or the death of the ego, someone, something that we were looking forward to that's been taken away that really has no bearing on our physical survival. But now it's like thinking there's two wirings to the old hardware. Wow. And the old hardware doesn't know the difference. It just responds the same to everything. Uh, long story short, sorry, the digital world, now we have kids whose parents take photos of them and put them online. And as soon as their consciousness emerges, it's emerging with the idea of the, um, the digital cell. You know, take care of that. And now we've got three things to take care of and three inputs to the security system. Whereas if your digital self is threatened, it can trigger a stress response, which was designed to keep you safe from lions and tigers and bears, oh my, not from <laughs> cyber bullies. Yeah. Um, wow. and, and so, you know, preparing for a fight and the idea of social media and managing that in a combat sport, we almost pump up this extra source of stress, anxiety, fear, anger, which again drains your battery as a hole in your bucket as far as preparing your body at a well-being level to fight. Yeah, so man. for kids, oh my gosh, we've got kids now who are managing three, um, I guess three representations of self, the real body, the ego, and now this digital self, all of which can trigger stress, anxiety, anger responses. So the emotional well-being of the next generation is fucked unless yeah. we match that with education and curriculum and support. And we as adults need to understand that, you know. Um, but as you say, our services are hard to access and our price point's a bit high. And, you know, <laughs> we're not well uh, accessible to the average Joe or a public school. So yeah. um, in part of my work is trying to figure out how to create long-lasting relationships with schools that do have sport excellence or academic excellence programs and trying to make sure that if they do achieve grants or funding for that, that they can bring in a sports psychologist to talk to their kids about both their yeah, well-being wow. and their performance, you know? Do you see there being a possibility? So you're saying that this is kind of old hardware, so like our uh, sort of primal brain, this yeah. old security system. The is there brain. a way that we can um, 
are we going to be able to rewire this thing so that it understands better, I guess? Well, look, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that question. I love it. It's a great question. We can't rewire it. I mean, we can't change the way it interprets its world because it's a very limited machine, the limbic system, the HPA axis, hypothalamus, pituitary gland, and amygdala. If you really want to get into the science, that's what we're talking about, right? That's the limbic system. Um, And it's... It's our emotional center and it's our motivation. You know, we're not motivated by thought. We're motivated by emotion. So it's a real basic, like you say, primal emotions, primal motivational states to get things that are appetitive because they help us survive and get away from things that are aversive. It's really basic behavioral patterns that you'd see in animals. That limbic system is responsible. We're not going to be able to update it, but we can improve the relationship between your cortical areas and your limbic system by learning about how to manage stress and anxiety and anger in a new way. Okay. And the first part is, you know, understanding that it is a false alarm, so we don't endorse it and roll with it and jump on board and give it power and, you know, rage out. Yeah. We, we need to be how able do you to... Do that? Well, first is, if you know it's a false alarm and you're able to look around and go, well, I'm physically safe in this moment, but I'm feeling angry, stressed, or anxious, well, those are security system emotions. Well, do the math. It must be a false alarm. It must have been my digital self or my ego that's triggered this because if I look around and go, am I safe right now? And I get mindful and present and view my environment, I notice there's no physical threat. So if I really buy into the model that this is a security system response only valid for getting me out of physical threat, I go, inappropriate response must be a false alarm. So I disenfranchise it. I take the weight out of the stress response and that script in my brain and that narrowing of focus to threat and danger. And now i got to get out of here and I won't cope. And I go, hey, all that stuff is anxiety. It's a false alarm. And then from there, I have a little bit of distance, a bit of space where mm. I can self-regulate. Okay. And we can't think our way out of stress and anxiety around sport or education or social stuff because stress and anxiety by nature is not a thinking thing, right? It's a false alarm from an ancient brain. Yeah. So thinking is the modern brain. It doesn't Remember, they don't get along well. Mm. They've moved apart too much. They don't communicate. So <laughs> the way we improve the relationship between your ancient primal brain and your modern brain is actually through learning to relate to stress that's not, I guess we could say, valid. I I feel icky saying that, but in this context, if we can say it's a false alarm, in a way we're saying you're not valid, you're not supposed to be here. Now that could be true or false. I could debate that with other psychologists for years, but we're just talking about practical here. How do we reduce people's stress and change their relationship with their survival response? If we say it's not valid, it gives them space to self-regulate. They can go, I know how to turn off this thing. And the way to turn off the alarm and over time recalibrate it so it's not so sensitive to ego threat or social media threat is to self-regulate and make sure that you can create a relaxation response in your body, which is usually done through um, your breathing, your body posturing, your yeah, you know yeah. imagination, rather than your cognition as far as thought and problem solving and you know furrowing your brow and thinking your way out of a stress response is probably the dumbest thing you could do. But <laughs> but we are reinforced to do that all the time. You know yeah, we're so yeah. solution focused in our coping. We don't usually think this is an emotion. Is it appropriate? If not, how do I turn it off? I can create a security system response just like I can create a threat danger signal. I can also go know you're safe. And that's not done by thinking. It's usually boring old breath and body language and Isn't it other funny? techniques. Like some of the actually the best practices for dealing with this shit is the most simple things. Like you, you're like, oh, I need to go and see a therapist because I'm fucked. And it's like, actually, you have all the tools right here. All you have to do is just sit down and breathe. Take mm. 10 slow, deep breaths, and that will probably fade. But here's a question for you for my... Sure. Um, I, 
used to get this, and I actually ended up seeing a hypnotherapist to help me solve this problem because I had a triggering response that every single time I got on an airplane, and it came out of nowhere. I've flown a bunch before, and I was fine. Right. And then all of a sudden, nothing in particular happened. I didn't have a scary plane flight or anything. I'll just, out of nowhere, all of a sudden, every time I got into a play, uh, an airplane, I started having panic attacks. Wow. And then, of course, because I'd start having the panic attacks, then as soon as I was thinking about getting in a plane, then I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have a fucking panic attack. Yeah, meta-anxiety, we call it. <laughs> anxiety about having anxiety. Yeah, it was atrocious. Yeah, so I'd go, it's a vicious cycle. And I'd have to fly. You know, like I, I, I was working in a job where I had to fly. So I, it's not even like that I had a choice. And I could avoid going to work. I needed to go. I wanted to avoid going to work. So then the anxiety about getting in the plane to go to a job that I hated just magnified how much I hated the job. You know, whatever. It was this huge, long thing. But so just the feeling of like I'd get onto the plane and then I'd start having that panic attack and I'd start trying to breathe deep. And then the shame of realizing that I'm sweating, everyone's looking at me, wondering what's wrong with me. They're starting to freak out a little bit too because I'm looking like I think I'm going to have a heart attack or something. And then the stewardess would need to come and help me and sort me out. Sometimes like they'd have to take me away, get a couple deep breaths and come back. So in my head while this is happening, I'm completely aware it's an Mm. irrational thought. I know it's irrational. Right. But as soon as I start thinking about it, like so when you said before, um, am I in danger? Mm. At that immediate present moment, no, I was inside an airplane that was sitting on the ground not doing anything. But my brain was going, yeah, you're in danger. You're about to be in a giant fucking metal capsule that's flying inexplicably through the air, through invisible nothingness, and it's held up somehow miraculously, and you're breathing. The thing to me is that I'm breathing everyone else's air. Right. So I'm inside this fucking capsule, and I can't breathe the air. Because right. everyone else is breathing my so this air. This claustrophobic, Ugh. trapped, out of control, this toxic environment. Yeah. And it's all packed into the idea of, you know, flying and being up there. Yeah. And it sounds almost no like escape. in that case there's a phobia, you know, which is not just a fear, but a fear that's persistent and strong enough and irrational enough to really get in the way of your basic functioning. Like you say, you feel the shame, like, you know, this is me, when really this is like, you know, it's like being shamed when you have a runny nose if you've got the flu, like... You wouldn't be pissed off and yourself and feel ashamed. You'd be like, I got the flu. I hate the flu. Yeah. But with a phobia, we don't get to, you know, we don't have the permission slip to treat it as a medical condition or a symptom of something. We right. get, we personalize and we get down on ourselves and that makes it worse. Yeah, because I'm weak and I'm, right. I'm being irrational. And then I how know. am I going to deal with the plane if I'm weak and irrational? And right. then that right, makes it worse. It sounds like an acquired phobia too when you say I haven't had it all the time. Yeah, it you just kind of came out of nowhere. Right. And, and sometimes that can be due to... Um, you know, a traumatic response in a part of your life that has nothing to do with flying because unfortunately, you know, fear isn't necessarily rational. And so you might go, well, you know, your mind wants to make up reasons why flying is dangerous once some event in your life um, has been very scary. And it might not be flying because our mind wants to figure out what triggered it. You know, you might have had a really scary situation in, say, the gym. You know, someone's choking you out, they can't feel you tap, and you start to freak a little bit, and you see the yellow stripe on their belt as you pass out. <laughs> then you get on a plane and someone's wearing a yellow belt. That oh, can literally whoa. be enough to oh trigger God. a traumatic response because of the nature of trauma. Now, I'm not saying that's what happened to you, mm. but it's an example where then your mind wants to catch up and go, why am I scared? Because I'm flying, and I'm trapped, and we're sharing air, and I don't know these people, and I can't get off in the middle, and the vastness of the void between us, and how the hell does these things work? <laughs> yeah. What might, am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's quite possible that that 
that that existential crisis of being in a tin can flying that fast with all these other people with this you know, yucky air, it could be that rationally that created a phobia, but very unlikely. Usually yeah, well. human brains are, are, tri- are wired in a way where we can acquire phobia through mild trauma and then a conditioned response, and then we just freak out so much in that environment. Right? That meta-anxiety means then we pack more fear into that environment, and the original cause might be so distant and disconnected years later when you go, I've got a flying phobia. That's a lot of the detective work psychologists do is we, because we know a little bit about the design of the brain, we can help you explore things like that and come up with insight you would have not normally had. Like, hey, do you remember the first time you were really scared on a plane and what was around you? And don't tell me the logical reasons why it happened. Tell me the sensory information where there's smells, sights, sounds that Mm. are connected at all to any scary situations or have you always been a hygiene freak and you read an article about planes and how fluey and gross they are you know was it was there a connection between some sort of uh you know ocd trait from the past but you know i look at you and i go i don't think you've got the ocd organized high like you know oh, i did when oh, I was you did kid, well there yeah. you go maybe see see you shouldn't judge a book by its cover <laughs> I've done, I, um, I've changed a lot over my course of my life through um, reading about psychology, especially because I was such a fucking mental case. <laughs> and I don't think... I, Self-diagnosed. <laughs> I don't think I was necessarily mental. Like, I, I said this to a friend of mine a while ago. Um, like, I had a big realization in the last few years that... See, I always wanted to be different. I wanted to be cool and creative and interesting and be not by a proxy of what I do, but because I had like uh, decided to attach this characteristic mm. to me. Like I'm different. I'm a punk rocker. I'm a skier, whatever it was. Like totally. I needed to, I, to create this identity of a person that I was that was different than other people. And in the course of doing that, I started clinging on to like my mental oddities and right. magnifying them in my head and thinking it was like cool to be mentally fucked up. And then So part of being different could be being in pain or suffering or going through something yeah. that's fucked up because it's unique. Yeah, because it's unique and it's cool. And like I, I really loved like reading ama- like some of the m- most amazing authors that I loved, you know, like William Burroughs. He was just fucked. He was a junkie. He was like, you know, all these people, they drunk, they had benzos and drunk to extremes and then wrote these like incredible poems or incredible books. So like, you know, incredible musicians that were all fucking damaged. So I got this idea in my head that I needed to be damaged in order to be creative. And I was going to be this artist that was like, um, so this is what actually ended up leading me into having a really gross relationship with alcohol and, and and what's caused me to not drink anymore. It was just, it's not that I had substance abuse problems. It was, I had self abuse problems. It's almost like identifying with this script about good art emerging from self-destruction and suffering and having identified and idolized people who've created beautiful art. It's like your eye for aesthetic led you down a path that maybe was a little bit, it's like, where was that mentor at that critical moment who goes, Hey, let's, put that in perspective yeah you know? well, like you could be so not that you can unwind powerful. the clock but <laughs> like what i and i only kind of realized this a, a couple years ago I was like oh there's nothing cute about mental illness there's nothing nice when mm. i actually experienced because i had become identified with um, needing to be this different interesting person i thought i kind of romanticized it yeah. and then when i actually started feeling it because i kind of worked my way into these modes of paranoia and anxiety and fear yeah. and substance abuse and all this shit all of a sudden i was living 
in this chaos. I was no longer on the outside watching the tornado and creating this mm. this masterpiece of a life and a person. I was inside the self and I felt my own self-destruction. And the things that I thought were cute and interesting about me um, from the outside, I was like, oh, this is really cool to be this fucked up person. Mm. What I realized is I was getting way farther away from my own self and my own power. So... Um, so yes, I've had tendencies. <laughs> a long answer to your question. I had, I did had tendencies towards OCD, but it was almost like I acknowledged that the, I had these weird tics, so I would dive into them and I'd magnify them because I thought it made me different. Yeah, right. And it was, and it's all. It felt to me like it was all a denial of the, of how safe and normal it is to be, a very normal, standard, intelligent person. Yeah, right. I was like, I own, I, I didn't want to accept who I am, so I wanted to create a persona that I thought was intriguing because I hated how normal I was. <laughs> and then once I became normal, I was like, oh, shit, look at me. I'm doing other stuff. I'm actually getting shit done <laughs> for once in my life. Oh, this is easier. I, uh, I, I think in some strange, convoluted way I can relate. As a, as a teenager, I think... A, Oh, wow. Trying to find identity through counterculture and yes. through um, pushing away from, you know, the mainstream and, and, and going up all those other little estuaries of culture and experience. And, um, yeah. and I think that, you know, uh, in some ways it can be a risk where we're putting our, in a weird way, our life on the line. But the benefit of growth and resilience and mental toughness that comes about where if you can swim rather than sink in a um, turbulent ocean, you know, I think that uh, those of us who can kind of pop out the other side and go, hey, I'm going to do something with that. That's meaningful and it gives me a sense of contribution and I know what I want to do here in this world on my, you know, uh, earth walk. Then I think that all of that uh, introspection and self-discovery and misunderstanding of the plight of the artist, you know, cutting off your ear and sending it away to achieve some sort of aesthetic, you know, it's a very Van Goghy, crazy kind of way of going. Yeah. Like, and I guess it's, it's uh, good to see you kicking butt and taking names in the ring, you know. <laughs> um, but, hey, don't judge a book by its cover, folks. <laughs> well, and that's it. Uh, fighting was one of the main things that I helped me acknowledge uh, 100% that I wasn't those voices that were in my head. The voices that told me I couldn't do shit, that I was, like that I should be ashamed of who I am, that I'm not interesting enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not one of those people. I always imagine the artist people are over there and I'm here wishing I was one of them. Mm. And I'm never going to have that creative thing. Even though I'd sit there and I'd make something, I'd have those days where I felt like I was in the zone, something just was connecting and I would just make something and I'd feel really happy about it, that I had this creative thing in me that wanted to come out. But because I was so ashamed of myself and, and I had this script and I'd actually like to talk to you about this, the concept of transactional analysis. Did you study that much? The concept of transactional analysis. Yeah. I don't know what you mean. Okay, cool. Um, it's the, the idea, I guess, more or less, that we have a script, a narrative that we run with, and that despite our best efforts, we all, the narrative is actually going to drive our behavior. Even if we're consciously trying to think or trying to do something different, yeah. the narrative actually pulls us back, even if it's something that's really self-destructive. If the narrative is telling me... So my narrative has been and who knows where it starts but is that I'm not one of them I'm different 
yeah, and I'm yeah. I'm not good enough. You know, I'm yeah, different right. than the normal person. That's um, and below the bar, hey, different yeah, and below the bar. Yeah, definitely not good enough. So I'll be judged poorly. Yeah. So and those why judgments put my will affect out because, my, yeah, yeah, exactly. There's no point in in trying. Totally. I think I know what you mean. So I guess my way of relating to what transactional analysis, analysis, it sounds to me, and you know, here's, I guess, another way of looking at, I guess, the same thing is your core belief system. And what I mean there is we've got these really important beliefs uh, deep down in our belief system, and we're not really conscious of them. We don't need to be for them to be operating and affecting our thoughts and emotions and perception and the way we interpret our world. And in a weird way, they also create a script that we sometimes follow and are almost chained to, even if we're aware of it and we're trying to break loose. And so we've got a group, maybe we could look at it as three important groups of beliefs that create this script that we're, as you say, that we're somewhat chained to. And the first one is your beliefs about yourself, your self-belief. Things like I'm different or I'm below the bar or I will inherently be judged poorly by others or, you know, those things that uh, create normalizing, make us try to act normal rather than act authentic because we don't want to be seen and the self... Uh, the self-doubt and the social anxiety stuff, you know, that belief, but also the belief around greatness. I can be a champion. I'm strong. I'm Mm -hmm. durable. Um, I'm different. I've survived. Um, I'm self-actualizing. I can change. You know, there's a whole mess of self-beliefs that we're not aware of, but if you shine a torch down there with a psychologist, you can kind of creep around and be like, wow, look at this stuff. This is what forms my ego or my sense of self. Uh, And then you have another group of thoughts, which is your group, your, your beliefs about people. So not just one person or a specific person, but people. People are trustworthy. Um, people are compassionate. Mm-hmm. People have an honest and equal investment. People are there for me. Or people are dangerous. People are out to get me. People are selfish. People are two-faced. Yeah. Um, the third group is our beliefs about the world. And it's a little bit abstract, but beliefs like, is the world a hostile place or a safe place? Um, is the world easy or difficult? Can I cope with this stimulation of the world? Is it beautiful or ugly? Um, And if you add those together, so beliefs about myself plus beliefs about others plus beliefs about the world equals my beliefs about the future. And that's what I'm connecting with when you talk about uh, the transactional analysis and the script is the beliefs about the future or the script that comes out of that math that our brain's doing without us knowing. It's, um, it's It's a constantly evolving but very... Uh, fixed script you know like it's like no matter what we go through in life there's this thorny vine that just won't break in the middle of it and I I really think that that's part of that mix of core beliefs uh, and schemas so you know we use the word schemas in psychology to talk about self scripts that come about from your beliefs and your character your personality mixed with your belief systems and we get these self scripts and scripts about people you know, like yeah. you might find that after a breakup, an important breakup, um, you start to see the actions of all your friends and people around you through the scripts you had about that that other, you know, which is something I've experienced, you know, I was engaged and, 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 and separated um, not so long ago, only about a year ago. And, and, uh, and I was seeing the world and other people through these scripts that I had kind of, you know, been, they'd somehow boiled over the pot. I'd been stressing and going through conflict and turmoil trying to figure out my relationship and fix things and not judge people but in a weird way boils over the pot and then you've got this uh you know this frame you're seeing everyone through yeah uh and so I think that 
yeah, we are somewhat caged by our belief system and how it interacts with our world. And Fuck yeah. So you know. do you, it, depending on the life situation, when you're faced with something like that, like so the breakup of your engagement, like that, do you, does it start to magnify those scripts and you start to see them for what they are or do they start to run you, do you think? Well, I think they... Or do they, they can, change? They can do a bit of both. I think they hopefully encourage self-reflection and you know it's it's a chance for growth I guess and figuring out why you're being um why your uh your focus of attention or your mental energy is going toward a a certain you know um script and if that script isn't in your face and in the room and with you all the time and it's still triggering stress and you're you know having little arguments in your head with someone who's not even there (laughs) and trying to resolve and feeling control again over something that was out of your control um, I think part of it is like the that acceptance and recognizing we don't have control a lot of the time, but yeah. you know you you have to reflect and be like, hey, this is hurting me. I'm obsessing, or I'm seeing my you know action. I'm getting angry at my friends and like seeing them as doing something that's obviously they're not because yeah. they're not doing that. Then I guess it's a time to recognize you're going bonkers and you got to do some uh, some healing, whether that's <laughs> going into the forest or talking to a psychologist or. Um, uh, a pastor or a monk or an uncle or an aunt or, you know, going to those uh, support systems that we need when yeah. when self-reflection and healing are required. I like to think about those moments like they're almost like earthquakes, kind of. Like, it's like you have this... Um, have you felt an earthquake before? Only little ones. I don't think I've ever felt a big fella. I, well, I was in Indonesia. Um, Aceh? What was that? Oh, sorry, when the Aceh earthquake happened? I or? can't remember. Was it Padang Padang? Oh, I don't know. Um, well, 2004 or, or the more recent one? No, it was one. later than that. It was must have been 2007 or something. Yeah, cool. Sorry. But anyways, yeah, so I was over in Indonesia and it was um, I was in these little tiny islands out, wow. the, the Mentor Islands off of Sumatra. and That's so weird. I have a friend who I think was there as well. Oh, really? Yeah, sorry. I'm so sorry to interrupt. It's just <laughs> weird because I literally have a friend who was there at Minatawa Islands when the recent earthquake was, I think, was 2007, 2008. Yeah. Whatever. You guys could have been in the same bloody oh, situation. Same Anyways, no, they, they had left Minatawa to the main island near that when it actually happened and they couldn't get back out. But Ooh. Were you surfing? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I was out there um, surfing. We had we had decided to go over for I think five weeks or something, and we spent three weeks on this island, and it was beautiful. It was amazing. And then on the second week, we had this huge earthquake that was out to sea, deep out to yeah. sea next to us. But the islands themselves, because they're so small, it felt like like I've never experienced an earthquake ever in my life. I grew up in the mountains; it doesn't ever happen. I've never experienced anything except for a blizzard. And the earth to me is this very solid mass. It's a grounded, solid mass. Like anytime I'm feeling nervous or anxious or up high, it always feels like I'm up in my head Mm. when I get that anxiety that like the thing that makes you calm is like your feet even on the earth. It's a steady thing. And when I experienced this earthquake, it was this this steady thing that never moves was shifting and sliding underneath my feet. And I can't even describe, I was still giving me chills now, the disconcerting sensation of that, like that this thing that is my grounding, my safe 
the one thing that is always safe and always mm. holding me was sliding underneath my feet. And I think it was because we were on islands, you know, at the core of them and down at the bottom, they're probably just tethered. <laughs> to, I don't know what they are, but it was like, holy fuck, this thing is swaying in yeah. the midst of the, this is not the earth. This is not the grounded earth that I'm used to. But anyway, mm. so when I think of those moments where you have built this foundation of what's normal and real, I was right. with my uh, with a boyfriend for six years, same concept. It was like six years, a very long, stable, normal relationship. I lived here with him. I'd left all my families, obviously, back home in Colorado. I'd moved all the way over here, and it was six years of living in this country in love with somebody, and then that broke down, and it was it literally felt like that earthquake. It was like everything that I knew was safe, secure, and stable suddenly was just shaking underneath me. It was just gone. Yeah. Everything that I had built up about who I am or who I'm supposed to be or what I'm doing, where my life is. Even though, what's interesting about this though, is that even though that thing was making me feel suffocated and miserable, I felt so lonely and stuck mm. in that stable place. It was like I had built a concrete wall around me. I was very safe. I was very stable and very protected. And then... I, I, the earthquake didn't necessarily happen to me. It was like I created this earthquake by just blasting through the, the concrete walls that I'd built. And then all of a sudden, here I am out in the elements again that I'd never experienced before. It was like mm. everything reset. And so to go back to that, it was like, oh, fuck. Everything I've ever thought about myself and who I, how I do the things I do, I was on this stable track. And now I have to build all the little pieces again. Right. Who am I? What do I want? Where am I going? And I think without good grounding in those moments, you know, like taking those pieces and without having that self-reflection and having good people around you that are going to help you see through your scripts and not let you get paranoid and chaotic, it's really easy to, you know, you can pick up those pieces and rearrange them any way possible <laughs> and it can be fucking bad. Yeah. It's tough work to do when you're in the middle of a disaster zone in a foreign country, too. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, then, and there's that, that many moments. I mean, you've been here, what, 22 years, you said? Something like that, yeah. Been in Australia for yeah. around 20 years. And when you had that experience, did you feel like, was it that? Was it like, oh, fuck, what am I doing here? Where am I going? Where am I, what am I up to? Uh, what do you mean, when I moved to Australia? No, when you um, broke up. Oh, God, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think, you know, you go through different stages of grief and loss, not necessarily of that person, but of the, you know, relationship and the imaginary future and it all is, the things. It is. It's the future that you miss, isn't it? Well, yeah, you invest in this, I guess, like you say, you know, a, a script or a fairy tale. And I think, um, you know, even for those of us who get lost in the present moment and the now, there's always that, like, ever-compiling data pool of, you know, uh, your options and opportunities and, like, this script of like you say, feeling in control and thinking, you know, the rules of the universe and feeling the sense of security and control of like, okay, I've found this person. And so now we're going to like live on, you know, property and have kids and grow organic food and, you know, whatever. And, you know, you, that's like happening in the background. Again, that's your belief system. You don't have to be conscious of it 24 seven for it to be a real thing, you know, and sometimes certain beliefs are triggered, you know, uh, by, by the universe being like, Hey, your beliefs aren't facts or truth, they're, they're totally irrational, but they're natural based on what you've gone through in your life. But the problem with beliefs is they're not a one-to-one -one relationship with what's out there in the world. So when they're violated, when they're rule-based, core beliefs, like, for instance, my earth 
under my feet is safe and grounded. You know, the earth doesn't move around like yes. a dinner plate on a on, on top of a stick, you know, in a juggling <laughs> act. Um, and then when that happens, I guess, it shakes your sense of control and your sense of safety and security and, you know, your whole worldview gets thrown into uh, the mixer. Yeah. You know, and I guess that earthquake's a great microcosm example of your core beliefs being challenged and... Uh, and thrown out the window and that's kind of what I call an existential crisis for some people that can be traumatic but others it can be like just an existential crisis where your belief system is shaken like a bird in a cage by natural forces or by events that just show you it's a best fit guess it's the best uh, like it's the the best approximation by your brain of how things work to help you navigate and survive, but it's not something you can count on yeah Um, and and what do you think it is about types of people that some people that turn that into that it becomes chaos for them and it's a disaster and it destroys them and Mm. other people that grow out of it well I mean I'd love to say you know people are built inherently mentally tough or mentally weak but I think that you know that would be an oversimplification I think that there's a lot of factors that contribute about whether you'll sink or swim in a traumatic situation or an existential crisis or a natural disaster Mm. um and probably like the way you frame it and interpret it, what it means to you and uh, the social support and su- resources you have available to you during that time. And, you know, the the emotional state and, and so you know, health state you were in when it happened, you know, they all change the way we frame events. So yeah. if you can frame a natural disaster, a chaotic event around this is a chance for me to grow or this is devastating, it's like whether you come out of it being a victim or an agent of your own world. I yeah. think that makes a big bearing if you come out of it with that framing of I'm a victim of something horrible and now I need, you know, now I'm I'm, I'm broken or, you know, uh, messed up by this or whether it's like, wow, I've survived that and now I have a responsibility because of that experience to, you know, understand my world different or do things different because that yeah. forced me to look in the mirror or look at the world differently. I guess that would be like, you know, part of that. So I think it's partly like inbuilt, but also partly about the circumstances and the support you have around you to be able to yeah. see it as a source of agency and change rather than, you know, this You're now right. defines me and I'm, yeah, I've lost my psychological legs to this earthquake. Yeah, man. Well, that, I wonder about that because a lot of those things that you mentioned are pretty out of your control. Like, is there any way that you can cultivate a mind state that would be more adaptable in a situation if you have a mental earthquake if you had been practicing, say, some kind of element of whatever, you know, in the same way that I have training, like that I know how to throw a punch because I do it fucking constantly. Yeah. That over time, when I get up against a dangerous opponent, I still know what to do because I've been practicing to do that over and over again. Even if it's the, the most, I never expected this opponent to do that thing, I still kind of roughly know what to do. Like, so if you come up against a mental earthquake, is there certain tools that you can cultivate in yourself? to make yourself more resilient? I mean, I think that uh, if you're lucky enough to have cultivated certain coping skills or um, mental skills like, you know, meditation, things like that, that help you become more mindful when you're going through crisis, I think that you have a, you know, really, you're, you're really lucky, I guess, mm-hmm. in life to have those uh to be ready for crisis. And I think most people don't really look at meditation or mindfulness or, you know, um, developing mental resilience so that when shit hits the fan, they can operate and, you know, work like, um, 
ambulance driver and SES rescue person uh, and be able to cope and deal and, you know, operate under extreme duress. I, I think those are very hard skills to develop right. when you're in crisis, you know, yes. and, and that's what yeah, I feel like. need to do it before. Exactly. And, and so it's like post hoc, you know, it's really hard if you're in the middle of an earthquake to be like, all right, I'm going to develop meditation. Like now that my, <laughs> now that my world's like, you know, in a tornado and I just want to like sleep all day and like, I don't know, like chug booze, I'll, I'll go to, I'll go to the sensei and get on this. Yeah, yeah. You know, those are times when your self-control and your resilience and your self-love and your discipline are so low that I find that, you know, good on you if you can invest in some sort of healing art that's way harder than riding a bike at those lows. Why is it so hard? Why is Because mindfulness and meditation, I mean, I hear everybody talk about it so often. that, they, And they are really very simple. And it's something that everybody can do anytime. You don't need money. You don't need anything. You need a basic, like your basic human needs to be met. And that's pretty much all you need to be able to meditate or, or have a mindfulness type of practice. Mm. Why is it so hard? Um, it's a good question. I think we've packaged Eastern spiritual and philosophical tradition. So we've packaged Tibetan and Eastern Buddhist, like Zen and Tibetan Buddhist practices, um, and ancient Hindu practices around meditation and yoga and Tantra and, you know, like prayer and, you know, we've packaged it and marketed it as well-being commodities for Westerners. And we've stripped it away of a lot of the important knowledge systems and frameworks Mm -hmm. and oversimplified it and probably misunderstood it in a lot of ways. There's no Tibetan monk or, you know, Hindu uh, guru out there practicing alone with an app on their phone. (laughs) They've all had one-on-one like you say, the connection we have when we're sitting here together is so different than if I had recorded this and sent it to you and then you were doing sound bites over it or if we had done it in a different way. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, I mean, in, in a weird way, and only because I've studied Tibetan Buddhist like practice and philosophy and been over in India, and my dad, my, I'm lucky enough to have a, a father who works in philosophy and um, Tibetan culture. And, you know, um, I think we've really... We have really, you know, like you said, it's so easy and so simple to be mindful. It's easy as an idea to have a clear mind. It's incredibly hard to achieve. Yes. And meditation is like martial arts um, as far as the movement. You know, you're you're developing all these um, patterns of movement and structures a way of moving so that you can kick ass and do all these incredible things with your body. And there's a parallel meditative practice in really, you know, uh, old school martial arts where you're developing a structured mental practice of meditation. And I think we have oversimplified the idea of the levels that you go through. You know, there's Westerners who want to go out to do their te- their, their, their 10 day Vipassana silent retreat who've never done meditation and don't understand the value of a silent retreat or the danger of a silent retreat. Oh, you know, the fucking danger of being there that can be incredibly bad for your mental health if you don't know what it is. And people traditionally would work up to silent retreats and isolation retreats and, you know, dedicate their whole lives to the practice of meditation like we might to a skill of, you know, um, Muay Thai or or combat sports or whatever. And there's levels and guidance. And some of the uh, meditations are incredibly intricate and much more than just focusing on breath. You know, this is like the first step in developing this ridiculous architecture within your mind. Mm. And so I think we have really stripped back and 
consumer, like, you know, packaged for consumers, this well-being stuff, these commodities of meditation, mindfulness, yoga, mm. rather than understanding, you know, all of the Ayurvedic and, and, uh, and, and all of the, you know, Chinese medicine and systems and the Tibetan Buddhist, you know, philosophy stuff that kind of groups around them to give us an understanding of how difficult and incredibly complicated it is to retrain your brain and your mind. And these are five, six, seven thousand year old, yeah, you know, wow. art forms and practices of people just sitting around introspectively. Um, so, hey, meditation's hard. It's supposed to be. And it's just <laughs> as, you know, just like for you being able to kick someone really hard uh, without them seeing it coming and put them on the floor. I think, you know, you got to put your 10,000 hours in and yeah. really be be uh, humble and vulnerable to meditation showing you that, you know, you have a, a wild and chaotic mind and that it is a weak muscle. And in a weird way, you do need to invest in strengthening that muscle. You know, if I think a lot of us, especially in Western society, have very weak minds as far as the kind of strength that comes with meditation, okay. of focus and, and what I would call there's, there's two kinds of focus we get from meditative practice or mindfulness or just training your brain to be more focused. One is selective attention. So we're not very good at locking our attention onto one thing like breath or a stone or um, a a single point of focus and just holding it there. Mm. You know, if I ask you to focus on, uh, you know, uh, my sunglasses here, you know, after a minute or so, your mental muscle fatigues, Your, your, your attention drifts. Yeah. So we don't usually invest in training actively in a structured way with mentoring how do I improve my selective attention and how will that help me in life Uh, that's a big part of meditation so it's this honing of this core fundamental part of your attention and your executive functioning which is being able to lock onto one thing and block everything else out for a long time and even if that thing is not so fun to focus on is boring because it helps us to to develop the other part of our attention which is self-awareness and not the kind of self-awareness like I know who I am I like reggae and I like dancing in the forest and like that's who I am man Um, (laughs) much more the self-awareness of just being able to monitor your mind which is what mindfulness is about Mm. so if I can lock my attention onto one thing and hold it there I'm working out my selective attention muscle as soon as my attention fades the process of noticing that fade and noticing hey where did my attention go Oh, it went, it went to my stomach. I'm feeling hungry or I'm, I'm noticing I'm bored. It went to my ego yelling, hey, I'm bored. Let's not focus on this. Yeah. And then being able to notice that and bring our attention back to the focus point, that's training our, our self-awareness. So you can think of those as your two guns in your mind, like your two biceps. Like, you know, you might as well write them on the biceps if you really want to capture this. Is you've got, <laughs> you know, selective attention and self-awareness. And the process of meditation or, or mindfulness is really about building those muscles from scratch. And if you're not doing anything right now to build those, then they're not getting stronger. You wow. know, and so meditation practice at a basic level should be about building those mental muscles that I can lock on and and stick with something and clear my mind of everything else. And that when I drift, I notice quickly and can bring it back. So I've got this CCTV camera muscle I'm developing as well as this magnetized muscle. And they're really important for performance and training and operating under pressure. And I think that's those two mental muscles are what really helps people when they're in crisis. You know, you're saying, what what, what skills can you develop to like be resilient to really horrible situations? And I think when we talk about mindfulness or meditation as a way to you know you're on a tropical island in the middle of an earthquake and there's shit going down and you start to freak out and you start to notice 
that your mind is, you know, your stress response and your self-awareness allows you to almost get one up on yourself to notice that change and go, okay, I notice I'm feeling stressed or I notice I'm going into a fucking panic attack. (laughs) (laughs) You know, how can I recruit my selective attention to simplify what's going on and calm myself down and self-regulate? So, you know, I think we, they're really hard skills to develop when you're, when you're going through a real or psychological earthquake but I think they're valuable skills to develop that's just in a, case, you know? Yeah, man, that's a great way of putting it. I've never heard it put that way, and it's so clear. It's so clear. So you pretty much you're saying that, like, if I um, I had never done any of this type of meditation, never thought into my own capacity in my brain, but I have a little bit of issue, and somebody goes, go do a Vipassana retreat. That's, like, pretty much me going into an Olympic weightlifting competition without ever having lifted a weight in yep. my life. Yep. Yeah, it's like fuck. it's like deadlifting or doing squats with horrible form and big weights, and you'll fuck your back up yeah, totally I mean, straight up. Wow. And we totally take that for granted. You know, the amount of people I'm, like, I hear talking about wanting to go to a – you know, they're marketed well, uh, yeah, especially oh, are, around yeah. here. But um, I don't think there's much disclaimers going on about what the purpose is and the level of meditative practice mm. you're supposed to be able to achieve to get the best out of it. Because yeah. they don't, being silent and sitting still, which is the hardest part, sitting still is way harder than being silent. If you've ever done one of these things or talked to someone who has, yeah. you're not allowed to exercise and move around. You're sitting still 10 hours a day, 10 hours a day in meditative practice, sitting still. And the rest of the time you can walk around a small courtyard, but you, you can't go exercise like... You need to understand that that transitional stress and that that puts on your organism yeah, is part of a step in an ongoing process of training your brain. And it wow. won't inherently, sorry for any Vipassana experts who I'm, you know, ruining your customer base or your <laughs> referral network, but you won't inherently get what you need out of that. Right. You won't inherently, you're not designed to go into that environment and benefit from it. Why is Unless it? you have training of how to use that space and use that time to yeah. accelerate your meditative training and, and your, your process. So, you know, if you're not prepared, it can be, you know, Olympic lifting without the right preparation, right? Yeah, it's, it's a great analogy. Well, and like one, because um, I hear this a lot, obviously, with um, psychedelics, because I am a big proponent of psychedelics. I think yeah. that they can be very valuable in most people's yeah. lives. Um, even just something as simple as weed can be really fucking damaging or it can be really beneficial to people. And the problem is what really bothers me is that we classify all of these drugs, quote unquote, into all the same categories so that you think like, oh, I'm going to go have a mad party. I'm going to drink a bunch. I'm going to smoke a bunch of weed, maybe take a tab of acid, then get on the Coke and get out and party and dance. And it's like, holy fuck, I imagine putting any of those things in combination with each other inside my body. No wonder you have a mental breakdown. No wonder drugs are bad, you know, whatever. Because you're not going at it, A, understanding the tools you're using, and B, not having at all that initial self-awareness that, like, I'm about to alter my state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. If I have no understanding of my current state of consciousness and I alter my state of consciousness, it's going to be disruptive and scary for Mm -hmm. me. And a lot of people I talk to that really love to drink... um, don't like smoking weed at all. And a lot of people, you know, be like, oh, no, I smoked weed once when I was young and I fucking hate it. Yeah, no, awful. It makes me paranoid. It makes me free. I'm like, yeah, it does in the wrong environment. If, you, if you're if you 15 years old and you know no better and you smoke weed with a bunch of older kids and it makes you feel like you don't fit in and you don't belong, yeah, it's going to make you feel fucked up. And mm. it, But, and I'm not saying that I think everybody should smoke weed in their life. It's for some people. It's not for others. But the amount of, like, 
mental training that you can get by using these altered state of consciousness and having the awareness that, oh, I feel different and it's okay that I feel different. It's okay that these thoughts are coming this way. And it, it kind of like, for me, it's like sitting with a friend inside my brain mm. where I can watch these kind of, like my ego, these repetitive thoughts that cycle around inside my head. I can watch it come up and go, oh, yeah, this is just a broken rep record. It's just a record on repeat telling me this I don't know, some bullshit about who I think I should be or something. Mm. And when I'm stoned like that in a kind of a meditative type of way, I can be like, I don't need to be that. I don't need that thing. Like, get out of here. You're not helping me. And those thoughts, like, kind of fade away. And I, a lot, a lot of times after having a, like an experience like that, I come out of it just taking myself so much less seriously. And I find a lot of people that really don't like weed or don't like psychedelics or never tried them or never want to, they tend to be really rigid people, really like stressed and intense. And they, a lot of times really love that feeling of like getting on the Coke or getting drunk because it's mm. like, that's their release. Mm. And it's because it's a total numbing. It's a total avoidance of that presence of mind, of that state of being like hyper aware of the inside of your brain but it can be really dangerous and I think um I'd never thought to put it that way but like I guess over time I uh I was afraid of the contents of my head anytime I've been afraid of the contents of my head because I've been spending too much time disassociating from it or running away from it I don't like getting high then I force myself to periodically sit down and just get stoned and deal with what's going to happen mm. and through that process, I've learned to relax inside yeah. an uncomfortable situation. And it comes and it goes. Sometimes I'm better at it than other times. Sometimes I just melt down and have to watch Netflix. <laughs> I was watching Netflix last night. <laughs> Sorry, I know that's not a very intelligent way to respond to quite a really interesting, um, I guess, an interesting topic. Um, and in a weird way, it parallels, you know, the commercializing and um, simplifying of uh, Eastern and, and Buddhist traditions of healing that now we're seeing, especially in like the, kind of the new age spiritualist world, they're reconnecting with things like, uh, you know, DMT, mm. uh, you know, ayahuasca, um, magic mushrooms, uh, LSD, um, you know, peyote, and a lot of people, um, a lot of people really understanding that I guess traditional cultures and tribal cultures were using psychedelics and mind-altering substances to both exercise their spiritual traditions, but more so for healing. Mm. And that ancient healing traditions in almost all traditional, like, you know, and, and, and ancient peoples, you know, like the real people who've been here forever, um, you know, even us whiteies probably, you know, I know that the, the ancient Scottish used to rub this blue stuff on their face. It made them trip out before battle. And so there's this idea of you, know, you go into battle, you want to be in your optimal state or at least fearless. And so this idea of enhancing your conscious experience or healing or doing um, rituals and spiritual practices through mind-altering substances to achieve, you know, an altered conscious state, it's been around forever. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, meditation in a weird way, you know, it would be pretty cool to see the reality TV show like, you know, tantric level Buddhist monk versus ayahuasca matter, you know, like <laughs> Himalayas versus Peru. Let's go. Let's see. And just put them on some cool challenges that we just get the ayahuasca master. He's been, you wow. know, uh, singing the, the songs of the trees for years, as well as the, the, uh, isolated 30 years meditation practitioner and just see who levitates first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That'd be sick. and, and look, I, I also, you know, you hear like every, every cool 
trendy person out there wants to go out in the jungle and, you know, have an ayahuasca ceremony or wants to get on the microdosing and, you know, get the magic mushies of the LSD and microdose because of the research that's coming out right now that, mm. you know, DMT and um, psilocybin and, you know, uh, lysergic acid have um, beneficial effects on mental health and it's new science and it's, you know, not necessarily reliable or as valid as it could be because of repetition. We need a lot of repetition and, you know, big big sample sizes. We can't look at case studies. We've got to be careful with our filtering system for science. Yeah. Um, and not everyone is equipped to do that, unfortunately, especially... Well, and it's regulated too, so you can't actually get access to well, the Right. The, re- the research itself is very hard, very, mm-hmm. very hard to, um, to do. Um, but there is this re... I guess reconnection with ancient healing, you know, stuff. And I think you know, weed and, and yeah, like you say, it's all been thrown into the same bin, you know, mm. whereas for a lot of people who would be accessing healing, I guess, through, like you say, smoking weed or microdosing or trying some sort of DMT-based thing, you know, it's risky because like your 10-day meditation retreat, if you don't have the support and the knowledge and if you don't know what DMT is all about for what your goals are, you can end up going backwards. Yeah. Or, you know, oh, um, yeah. I'm mixing too many things together, which aren't necessarily what the um, shaman would be doing under the stars, you mm-hmm. know, to generate their energetic, you know, whatever power that they're that they're doing in their traditional beliefs. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we got to respect traditions and learn before we embark on that, maybe. And heed yeah. caution if we realize that the thing we're taking has nothing to do with our goal. And, you know, that's where dissociation can be dangerous, I guess. Yeah, fuck. It's cool. I mean, it's refreshing to hear somebody like as educated as you are in this field to be open to that idea because a lot of psychologists, you know, are a lot of people that are dealing in the world of psychology at the moment, with the exception of MAPS. Um, mm. you've, have you heard of MAPS and the research that they're doing? They're MAPS, the no. Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. No. And they're a group of um, uh, just a big group of people over in the United States that are trying to push um, currently research with MDMA and getting yeah. MDMA back into psychotherapy. Yeah. And they're in their stage three clinical trials now. So they're cool. hoping by 2020 to be able to make it a prescribable treatment. There you go. Well, I guess that was its basis when it was being developed was marriage counseling, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, that was the original use. Yeah. They found out. Take one of these and talk. I think that (laughs) was the instructions. Take one of these and talk. Um, well, I mean, those, uh, those are, uh, brave, uh, brave scientists because there's a, like you say, when you group everything under the term drugs, you're taking a big risk in identifying professionally around researching that and, yeah. you know, holding that shield and spear um, far more brave than I. I think uh, <laughs> now obviously the psychologist's role aren't, isn't to, pr- to promote, uh, you know, the use of pharmaceuticals or antidepressants or other medication, but in some people's cases, it's really important to be able to encourage people to look at medical treatment depending on the scale and intensity, what they're going through and whether they have resources and other supports available. So it's quite political when we get into, you know, that that whole meds side of things. Um, And as a psychologist, my expertise area, I can't really comment too much on the pros and cons of uh, (laughs) (laughs) self-medicating. I think it's more about your own capacity to see whether it's healing, self-medicating or self-destructive. And I encourage listeners to be really self-aware about, you know, when they're utilizing some other psychoactive substance to stimulate their consciousness, 
is this self-destructive? Is this self-medicating? Or is this part of healing? And if it's part of healing, what do I know about this substance use and healing over human history? If I'm just making it up as I go along, shame on you. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. and that's where that simplification yeah, and danger comes from, the risk, I think, in, um, yeah, fuck yeah, in, in uneducated self-medicating. <laughs> it's you... hard to figure out whether I'm healing or hurting myself, oh. you know? Yeah, and it's really easy to fool yourself into thinking that you're doing something for some reason when really you're just avoiding yeah. the actual issue. Yeah. And the same goes for using pharmaceuticals. Yeah, and oh, and, and realizing that I'm self harming, mm. or am I self, you know, medicating here? Am I beyond the instructions, or am I am I healing with this thing? And you know, yeah. we've been using amphetamines and all sorts of, you know, uh, pretty powerful substances with doctors and everything. And I think people shouldn't take any of that for granted or see yeah. that just because it comes from a pharmacy, it's safe. You know, that, right. that whole association between pharmacy and safe, I think we want to be careful with. Fuck, yeah. So disclaimers on both sides. <laughs> You'll never know where I sit, I guess. <laughs> That's good enough, man. Um, well, shit, we've been talking for just over an hour, so I need to let you go and get back to your life. This has been a great conversation, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to um, come and sit with you and talk about um, all sorts of things. All sorts of things. I know we barely even talked about sports psychology. This is always the trouble that I have because I get too excited about talking about all kinds of shit, and then mm. all of a sudden, here we are, and I never even really talked properly about what you do, but that's okay. There's plenty of time for that. And if anybody wants to find you, where do they go? Yeah, so I um, founded a company called Summit Performance Psychology, um, and I work out of uh, well, I work out of the Gold Coast um, at the Gold Coast Physio and Sports Health, which is a big um, mm. sports health clinic um, with everything from physios to uh, Pilates to dietitians and sports physicians. So I'm in there, kind of cool. doing my thing. And um, you can find me online on summitperformancepsych.com um, or uh, or just give me a call or you know email or whatever. Maybe we'll have it at the bottom of something yeah um, yeah i'll have all the links for all that stuff yeah. on the post and then on all of our facebook pages and everything else um cool man oh well, it's great talking to you and we'll do it again another time no worries thank you very much for having me. hello again um isn't this cute my brother suggested that i do this at the end of the podcast it's kind of like well it's kind of like a sweet like just a hug at the end I just was there with you at the beginning, and then after it's over, I'm still just kind of checking that you're okay, you know, that we've been through something together, and, you know, did you feel... And I just want you to know I'm still here, and I still care about you a little bit. Um, of course, unless you didn't make it this far, then I'm not fucking talking to you, am I? Um, but if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. I uh, hope you got something out of that. That was Abraham Garfield. He's a sports psychologist who runs Summit Performance Psychology. You can find them on Facebook and on their website at summitperformancepsychology.com. Uh, he also runs the Athlete Recovery Academy, and all the information for that is on his website, Summit Performance Psychology. And I've got all the links to that on my website, and I'll also mention them in the Facebook and Instagram posts. Um, Lastly, um, I got this idea because I listened to a really fun and excellent smart podcast called The Blind Boy Podcast from a guy in Ireland that uh, is a member of the band, I guess, or Rubber Bandits, if you've ever heard of it. Um, anyways, he uh, put this very eloquently and made sense to me. He basically says, if you like listening to the podcast and if you saw me out in the world and you would like to show your appreciation by buying me a beer 
or sitting down having a chat with me or whatever, um, you have the option of doing that through Patreon, which is a website that allows people to support creative people uh, whose work they appreciate or like. So for the cost of uh, you know a cup of coffee a month, uh, five bucks a month, or um, a shot of whiskey or whatever, uh, you could help support me and keep me making this stuff. I have aspirations of restarting my uh, web series, The Pervert's Guide to Art Criticism, and I also want to do some live podcasts. Um, so the more support we get, the more people that listen to it, obviously, the better. Um, if you can't afford any money to spare or you don't feel like doing that, it's no problem. This podcast is always going to be free uh, to listen to, and I really appreciate you listening regardless. Uh, if you feel like it, share it around to your friends, tell people about it so more people can listen, and then hopefully we can get enough people that uh, want to come out and watch a live podcast. So that's it from me. Hope you guys have a great week. Enjoy yourselves, and I'll talk to you again soon.